So we're looking at the, the wisdom part of the path. The, the perhaps maybe framed as the, the liberating part, the ultimately liberating part of it. And uh, it, it takes some unpacking. I mean, uh, this one uh, for me uh, over the years is just a, it's just been a process uh, trying to get at what the Buddha is uh, pointing to here and trying to see it for myself. Um, it, it's all about the gradual dispelling of ignorance. And this is something that happens in, in a very slow and um, uh, immediate way, but in, in a way that's sort of just little, tiny little uh, insights um, incrementally over the months and years of practice. Well, what ignorance means, uh, really, I love Ajahn Sumedho's definition of it, where he says that um, it's, it's this uh, tendency to take the simple reality of things and to uh, complicate that. <laughs> it's like, you know, and, and, and in a way, you can see that this is true because, uh, you know, when you stop complicating, you're back with the simple reality of things, which is where you were all the time, except that you didn't know it because you were living in this world that you had just created as a reaction to what's actually happening. And, and the thing about that movement of the mind is that it adds to or distorts or takes away from what's happening in one way or another. And, and so it loses its reality, it loses a sense of reality, and yet that's where we live. So he, he says, ignorance complicates everything. <laughs> and that's what we need to see, and that's what we do see over the, the years of practice. And waking up is just simply uh, a process of relinquishing that tendency. So we have some classic definitions of um, uh, wisdom as right view and uh, right intention. And right view in the Samaditi Sutta, it's one of the ones that we skipped towards the end of this section um, this morning. So have a, have a look at it. But basically, I mean, it's very simply put. Uh, he says in the Samaditi Sutta that uh, right uh, understanding or right view is understanding the Four Noble Truths. Knowing about suffering, knowing about the origin of suffering, knowing about the cessation of suffering, and knowing about the way leading to the cessation of suffering. And I don't know about you, but you know, if you're like me, that when I first heard that, it just kind of, it wasn't computing. You know, it's like it looms kind of large. What do you mean I have to know suffering, know the cause, know the end, know the way to the end? You know, it wasn't settling into it because I, I think I was holding it in a way that uh, it sort of uh, made it uh, something that I have to get to, some attainment, instead of uh, a, a way of looking at what it was that I was actually experiencing. So if you unpack this, this is something that's uh, enormously practical. And the capacity to realize, and that's what he says, you have to realize the noble truths. You know, realize that for ourselves is something uh, profoundly experiential just to see uh, what's happening in any given moment. Knowing, as I was just describing earlier, knowing when you're caught up and being sensitized to the experience of that. <laughs> what's that like? And, and that's why I really like to highlight that moment where when you, when you release the grip that we have on something and the residue of what it was like to have been gripping is still there in the mind, just to hold that for a few seconds, go back and forth and know uh, that this is what it was like to be caught. This is what it's like to be to have relinquished, to be back, as we say, and and to let that register. That's that's the um, direct realization of the truth of suffering. It's going on right in that um, uh, uh, movement, uh, seeing that movement back out of being caught up and being here and comparing those two states. This is suffering, this is not suffering. And then gradually, over time, just being seeing what it was that, um, it, what made that other state happen. You know, seeing the grabbing, seeing the craving, seeing the ignorance. Um, lots of times it's in hindsight, but as we get good at this, you begin to see that moment where you're about to grab it. And that gets very, very powerful. Or. Uh, and, and so seeing that and then um, seeing that really like letting it register that there are times when we're not doing this. So this is a critical part of it. And we've talked about this in right effort. We've talked about it in a number of different ways. That um, the tendency of the unawakened mind is not to notice when things are going well. you know. And, and so we want to be able to bring that in. 
uh, and notice that when what's the experience of, of being of having relinquished, so that that can register that that is possible. You know, literally, you can let go and not know it, and not see it, and not let it penetrate the heart as a very real possibility of liberation. And I think the big one is really knowing that sila, knowing sila samadhi and panya as the way. And this happens over the years of practice. You know, you, you, we develop a, just this unwavering um, confidence in the path. You know, because we're enjoying the fruits. We, we enjoy the fruits little by little. And you start to uh, deepen in this uh, commitment, if you will, in the knowing that, you know, whoa, this is working. <laughs> I'm actually getting happier. You know, I'm, my heart is opening. Uh, and so that confidence in the Eightfold Path um, gets deeper and deeper and deeper and it very, very um, um, profound realizations because it starts to drive the practice. You know, it's, it's not no longer a case over the years that uh, you're doing what you're told, you know. It's, it's much more the case that um, you do, you're doing what you know works because you've seen it. You know, that, that's a very different orientation. And so this, this uh, right view, this is how it plays out. This is how we've come to understand and, and see things for ourselves. And yes, it's a profound realization and insight into the noble truths. But in a way, I think it's a very practical understanding of the, their truth. You, you see it in a very practical moment-to-moment way. And so wisdom in, also involves a right intention. And you may recall from our, our section on sila that uh, intention uh, is this impulse that's driving action. And maybe the bad news of it, what we come to see through practice, is that um, it's virtually unconscious. You, know, you don't really uh, see it happen except in very refined states of seeing. That, that, that movement of the mind that is directing where the attention goes, and even to some extent directing the course of our, of our actions through body, speech, and mind, is something that we don't um, really uh, control in the way that we think that we do. Well, that, you know, that says, well, well how are you supposed to clean it up then, you know, if, you, if you're not the one controlling it? But um, what we see through practice is that it, so much of it, it just has to do with um, being there for the, the fruits of practice and for the fruits of our actions and um, letting that, letting the direct experience of, of outcomes, if you will, um, direct the course of intention. That's how it's happening all the time anyway. You know, if, if, if we discover that a certain path or a certain choice um, leads to harm, the heart knows it, and it begins to recede from doing that um, in the future. And so, if you can feel that, what he's getting at here with right intention is the gradual um, unpacking and clear seeing in a very direct and immediate way the truth of the law of karma. That uh, what happens over the course of practice, uh, the many years, is that this um, impulse that's driving action gets purified, for lack of a better word. It, it, it moves, it learns, the mind and the heart learn to move away from uh, choices or actions that bring about further suffering uh, and to move towards those that don't. And so that, that's karma, that's the law of karma, and we, we're witnessing it, seeing it uh, very, very directly. And it always, it always brings me to this, uh, this sutta that we also looked at in that section that to me is, is just one of the most profound in the Pali Canon. And that's this, uh, this one on the two kinds of thought where the, uh, the Buddha is um, letting us in on uh, his own process. And this is uh, him before he was an awakened being. <laughs> you know, it start, the sutta starts out before I was an enlightened being, you know. This is what I did. And, and so he's, he's uh, laying out a process where he begins to examine. Um, he puts his, his thoughts uh, and his actions into two classes. Uh, those um, that, uh, as he contemplates them, uh, lead to his own welfare, 
to the welfare of others and to the welfare of both. And on the other hand, he notices that there's these actions that do not lead to his welfare, do not lead to the welfare of others, do not lead to the welfare of both. You can, you can almost see him sort of sitting there with his way, weights, you know, just sort of, hmm, <laughs> which, which one do I want? Which way, which way am I going to go? And he actually puts it in this language. He says, um, he, he considered thus, when he contemplated and considered thus, and, and uh, you know, that this is, this is for my welfare, this is not. Um, but that, uh, just, consi- just look at that. He's saying that I considered. I don't, I don't think he's pointing to a process where he sat and thought about this particularly. You know, that, uh, oh, well, that's okay, and that's not. And, and uh, you end up with some cerebral process that uh, requires that you smack yourself around if you're in one and lean towards the other. It, it's much more a, a contemplative um, consideration. Uh, a, a, a consideration that's born out of direct experience. You know, I, I was there for it, and I saw where that led. I felt it. I saw the harm uh, to other people. I saw the lack of harm to other people. Uh, and, and that got into my heart. You know, to me, that's, this is the, the, the kernel of this particular sutta. And, and so he says, when, when he did that, um, he began to pull away from the uh, unskillful and start to lean towards the skillful. Uh, and this, I mean, this is the process we're in, isn't it? This is exactly what we're doing. He's not talking about something that's outside uh, of our experience. And I, I really like that. I mean, you have to uh, sit with that a little bit uh, uh, and recognize that we're not talking about something that... Um, you know, it's just t- the Buddha's talking about his practice. We're talking about our own practice. This is the process that we're going through. Uh, and, uh, you know, very simply, what he came through at the other end of this whole process is he said, um, the, the, uh, the mind began to become purified. The mind began to be cleared of um, difficult, hurtful, uh, harmful states of heavy, weighty karma, if you will. And so simply put, I mean, these two together, right view and right intention, the effect that, what they're affecting in the mind over the months and years of practice is a gradual, slow uh, process of of replacing these um, impulses, uh, as he puts it, sense, desire, ill will, and cruelty, and replacing those with uh, renunciation, kindness, and harmlessness, and it, and it's all being done. I, you know, I don't know about you, but it's just kind of magical to me. You know, it's it's it sort of feels like it's just happening at a at an energetic level. Um, if, if I want to muck it up, I have to I have to get in there and try to start make it happen or try to control it. You know, but if I get out of the way and just pay attention to the experiences that I'm having and um, let those register. I, in a way, I don't even have to think about whether it's for my welfare or not. I know it. You know, there's, it's a direct experience. And so it's just kind of like getting out of the way and letting this organism that seems to be so well designed to, um, for, for liberation, just let it do what it does. Well, of course, get that, that's, saying a, that's saying a lot, getting that impulse to manage and control out of there. But that's the process. So, you know, as, as practitioners, I, I'm sure we're all already realizing um, so much of this for ourselves. And if you don't think you are, um, I think that you just need to uh, look at it anew. <laughs> because I promise you, I guarantee you, <laughs> you're waking up. Yeah, this process is, is working in, in all of us. Uh, what we see over the years, and just look back, you don't have to even look back that far, to recognize and acknowledge that we're letting go more easily. Yeah? We're letting go more easily. That's renunciation. That's the non-attachment. That's the letting go. That um, we're, we're starting to get it and maybe doing very well with this, that the 
uh, one of the best supports that we have for that letting go is to hold it with a kind and gentle heart. So the, the kindness, um, the quality of kindness in the heart, it, it, it grows because it has to. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a key player here. And this, uh, we figure that out uh, gradually. And um, also getting, really beginning to see through the years that one isn't so easily lured into it all uh, in the first place. Right? You, you start to feel the bubbling up of harm and um, the, the sort of somebody throwing the switch internally and, and moving away either from just grabbing hold of some reverie or some thoughts or uh, certainly out and out harmful thoughts you know that the, and this is uh, this not being pulled in in the first place is the harmlessness and so I, I just want to point these out because uh, I think we, we can miss this <laughs> and not really realize and let it register that uh, indeed this process is very much working uh, in all of us and, and we can expect that that will keep happening so look and see and know that um, it, it just keeps getting better through the years. So a number, a number of years ago, um, I don't know if I told you about this before, but uh, I, I took a, a number of us who were longtime supporters at the uh, monasteries. This was particularly the monastery in California, Obayagiri. Um, we were invited to take part in a training. The, a couple of the monks put together um, uh, a three-and-a-half-year training. Uh, we called it CALM, Community of Abayagiri Lay Ministers. <laughs> and uh, so we were, we were going to be trained in uh, the teachings, uh, just some of the basic teachings, uh, sutta study and uh, various uh, meditation practices. And, uh, but particularly it had a slant of um, the um, lineage of the Thai forest tradition, learning about the various uh, masters uh, in that tradition and uh, the monastic life, um, uh, the, the vinaya and all of that. Uh, and, uh, and so um, it was really powerful. I mean, it was really powerful just, you know, learning about the ceremonies and the rituals, the kinds of things that go on behind the monastery <laughs> walls, you know. And um, most of us were quite uh, knowledgeable about some of this, but not all of it, you know. But then after the, uh, as we approached the end of the training, um, one of the one of senior monks said, uh, you know, we ought to have some kind of really great celebration when we've completed this. Uh, what do you say we go to Thailand? Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, uh, you know, we, uh, it was interesting because there were 11 of us and, quite, and, and only half of us had ever even been to Thailand. And here we are becoming ministers in the Thai forest tradition, you know. <laughs> it, it seemed crazy that we hadn't gone. So um, they set up a, 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 we set up a trip. I mean, we all had a part in organizing it and uh, had a lot of help with the uh, Thai uh, lay people on the ground in, in Thailand and uh, rented buses and traveled around to the various uh, monasteries in the lineage of Ajahn Chah. And uh, really because um, a couple of the monks that were traveling with us were very um, senior uh, and well-respected in Thailand, uh, uh, so many doors were open to us on this trip, and uh, you know we would pull in um, to a particular monastery and be greeted by the abbot, you know, <laughs> who was like these very elder uh, Thai monks, and uh, then escorted into the Dhamma hall and uh, given Dhamma instruction, given the opportunity to talk to them and ask them about their life, about the teachings, all kinds of things. So it was very, oh, it was, it was great. I mean, we were definitely riding on the paramis of these uh, senior monks that we were traveling with. Uh, and really, uh, it's, it's the way to do Thailand, I think. <laughs> Some of the food we got was unbelievable. You know, it just, uh, because it was really for them, we were just kind of on, uh, on their coattails. But anyway, um, one of the monks that we went to see in the south of Thailand, uh, was purported to be an arahant. You know, that was the buzz. Everybody said, oh, we're going to get to meet an arahant. We're going to get to meet an arahant, you know. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, 
I don't really know how, how, to, how to take all that stuff. But, uh, so I was a little skeptical, but I went with an open mind. You know, I thought, well, this, this could be interesting. And uh, sure enough, we got off the bus, and um, uh, he was there right, at the, uh, uh, right, uh, right outside the steps of the bus uh, waiting for us and uh, greeted us. And I remember, I'll never forget this feeling. I can go to it very quickly just with my memory of um, this profound uh, emptiness. I felt like as I got uh, stepped near to him, there, uh, like, I got got a little scared. Um, It was, I felt like I was going to be pulled into some vortex, you know. And uh, he was so light and so empty. I, I, I really, th- I had the impulse to push my hand uh, uh, through him, you know, because I, knew, I was sure it was going to go right through, you know, that there was nothing solid there. Uh, and uh, it was quite amazing. And then, you know, we went up to the hall, and um, he was telling us some things about his practice, which that's a whole other story. But um, I couldn't. Dismiss this feeling. You know, I wanted to know about that state, and uh, this is where being an American is is really helpful. You know, because we're <laughs> we're so brazen. You know, <laughs> at least at least in, that's how a lot of other cultures see us. You know, and so after he after he uh, talked um, and he opened the floor for questions, I said I just spoke up and I said, you know, I just. I, 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 it's very clear to me, I don't know you, you know, but it's very clear to me that you're in a very different place than I am, <laughs> you know. And, and I just leaned in and I said, what's it like? And he, his response was not even remotely what I expected, but he said, um, my mind is filled with kindness. My mind is filled with kindness. And I know I'm like, <laughs> you know, after I picked up my jaw off the cushion, um, it was like, wow. You know, that's what the Buddha said. <laughs> that's what he said it was like. And um, it's, there's something about it that seems so simple. And I realized at that point that I was making enlightenment something uh, really uh, out there, you know, and and yet uh, what he reports and what pe- sim- people in, in similar situations report is um, is kind of an ordinariness about it. It's like it's a it's a very simple experience of having a mind that is uh, free of attachment, filled with kindness, and um, harmless. Oh wow. Quite powerful, quite powerful for us. And after the, after that, actually, <clears throat> I left our group and I met up with one of the nuns in our lineage and traveled with her for a month. And um, it, that can be uh, uh, it, it can be hard because neither one of us knew the language, whereas with the other group we had translators all the time. And so we were encouraged to go to this monastery um, in the central Thailand where. Um, there was a Thai monk there who spoke, uh, was very fluent in English, and um, that uh, he would be very good to us. He would really know how to take care of us. So we went and spent most of the time there, and they uh, scheduled sort of day trips around the area for us. Uh, he was very close to Ajahn Mahabhuva's monastery, so we got to go there a couple times. Um, but one, he, he, he was this wonderful monk who had a sense of, um, he seemed to have this uncanny sense of what we might like to do and where we might like to go. We, you know, it's not like we told him what we wanted to do. But one morning as we were sitting down to the meal, um, he leaned over to sister and he said, uh, I'll bet you two would like to meet some women who are free. <laughs> we said, yeah, <laughs> definitely. And so he had arranged for his uh, brother to come and get us that day and to take us to a nearby monastery where um, we met some couple of very old Mechis. One was 79 and one was 82. And they were sister-in-laws. And um, 
they were, uh, we asked them, we said, well, where's your husbands, you know? And they said, oh, they're in the monastery next door. <laughs> we just, we were in this monastery and they're in that one. They had, uh, were realizing that common experience of, you know, at a certain age, when the kids are all grown, everybody goes off to the monastery and becomes a monk and nun. But these two, these two women were just wonderful. And they were so, they were, hands down, two of the happiest people I have ever met in my life. And, and with, with so content and happy to be doing things with nothing, really. They didn't have much. They had a garden, they grew vegetables, they cooked. And they, they made these, they took these um, like big um, pop bottles, soda bottles, that were like, you know, the big double liter size ones, and, and cut strips out of them and wove chairs and benches and and they were just little benches that they so they didn't they said they said uh, um, when you get older you can't go all the way down anymore <laughs> and so they would make these benches to sit on and uh, uh, and oh, they laughed and laughed and so uh, we did we did I did the same thing with them I said well what's it like for you what's it like in your mind. And the one just burst out laughing, and she just went, No desire, no desire. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, I'm just totally blown away. And then she goes, <laughs> She just laughed at the, uh, the state, the happiness of that state. And so, you know, just to, meeting people like this, it's sort of, I don't know, who knows but that's what the state they were in. I wasn't in it, they were, you know. But it, it seemed very real and, and tangible to me, and it made it all come alive in a way that I hadn't known before. You know, just the, the mind filled with kindness, the mind filled with renunciation, no desire, you know, just that complete and utter letting go. And, you know, in the, in the presence of that kind of thing, and, um, one just becomes very inspired to do what we need to do, <laughs> to do what we need to do to liberate this mind. And so, you know, here, here we are, and um, we practice this path, and the Buddha tells us that we, we need to have insight into the noble truths. And the first noble truth in particular, he says, must be understood. Uh, and, uh, I, I, a long time ago, committed to memory what he outlines in there as his definition of suffering. There, this, is, this is it. This is what it is. There is suffering. And it's uh, birth, sickness, aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, having to associate with things we don't like being separated from things we like, not getting what we want, identifying, attaching, grabbing hold of uh, the five aggregates, being caught up in uh, identification with the body and the mind. I mean, that, that nails it. That about says it, doesn't it? It's like, it's all, it's all right there. And, and this needs to be understood. It needs to be seen. It needs to be, uh, in a way, um, grokked, gotten from our own direct experience. And, and so I think what he's pointing to here are some basic essential conditions of uh, this human birth, but also to, uh, to some extent the ways that relating to those conditions is um, compounding the suffering. And so there's a lot in there, and I, I don't really want to get into all of that right now, but it's certainly, I know you have um, all studied uh, the noble truths yourselves, and encourage you to continue to do that because this is this is a a very significant teaching. One realizes that it's the it's the very first teaching that he taught, and that right there gets my attention. I can remember when I was um, practicing at IMS long term, and you know, soon after I heard the teachings on the noble truths, I really wanted to grab a copy of it and 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 read it and uh, find out what it was all about. You know, because uh, uh, it, it just struck me that you know here's the Buddha. He's just liberated his mind. Um, he goes through a couple of uh, things about thinking about who he'd like to talk to about it, 
uh, maybe he'll tell his old teachers. He even wobbles a little bit and thinks maybe he won't teach at all because nobody will get it. And then he remembers the six uh, ascetics that he practiced with, five ascetics that he practiced with for six years, and um, he seeks them out and, and is, is going to go and uh, tell them. Yeah, just fresh off the liberation cushion, you know. <laughs> Here's what I saw. Here's what I learned, you know. I don't know what that does to you, but that just gets me, you know. I, I, I call it uh, my E.F. Hutton moment, you know. <laughs> it's like, what did he say? What did he say? You know, so I, want, I want to lean in and really uh, listen and pay close attention to what this guy says after this moment. And, and, the, and it's all right there, even in the first two lines of it. He says, he begins with the statement, there are these two extremes which should be avoided. Uh, the pursuit of sensual pleasure, uh, sensual happiness and sense pleasures, and the pursuit of self-affliction um, through self-mortification. That's a mouthful, but uh, let, just to unpack it a, a little bit, there's these two extremes that should be avoided. One, one place where I, I began to notice it in a lot of other different teachings you know, the Satipatthana Sutta starts out very similarly, where the Buddha uh, says uh, that we need to put away covetousness and grief for the world. You know, that, uh, or that maybe a later translation is, is uh, longing and discontent. You know, the put away, see this movement of the mind that keeps doing something, uh, wanting something different, not wanting what it is, right? Uh, reaching, pushing away. It's in the second noble truth, the becoming and the non-becoming. You know, it, it's that language uh, is, is throughout the, the, the Pali Canon, throughout the teachings. So just to bring it down to the vernacular, it's, it's really about uh, being preoccupied with uh, sensation, feeling, and thought, being preoccupied with what our experience is, being caught up in sensory experience, totally preoccupied, obsessing with it, grabbing it, you know, handling it uh, too much. Or, and then beating up on ourselves when we see that we do it. <laughs> I mean, it's just that, those two things. And uh, when, I, when I started to contemplate this, I thought, oh my goodness, I'm in deep doo-doo here because, man, that is all I do. <laughs> my, you know, as you, as you watch your mind uh, through practice, it's like, it's, it's like relentlessly grabbing hold and pushing away, relentlessly grabbing hold and pushing away. And, and yet this is what uh, we want to see. And very, very helpful when we realize that this is what we want to see, actually. You know, and, and to not put a judgment on that. Because one, one of the things that happened in my own practice, very, uh, in the years of intensive uh, practice in the early years, um, you know, I was uh, sitting and, and walking in meditation for a couple of years straight, and, and uh, many months into it, um, I, my, it was like probably the whole time I'm just pretty much in this state of grab, longing and resisting, longing and resisting, longing and resisting, caught up, letting go, caught up, letting go, caught up, letting go, just uh, endlessly. And, and yet one, one afternoon I was sitting in my room and it was like the mind took this quarter turn. That's uh, the only way I know how to describe it. It's like, uh, up until that point, it was completely in it. And something happened where, it, it, and I'm sure you've seen this, where it came around and it looked at it. You know, It looked at it as a phenomenon instead of being in it. That movement of the mind. I, I call it my quarter turn because that's all it felt like. It just, oh, wait a minute. You know, look at it from a slightly different angle. And um, I, I just became thoroughly um, disgusted <laughs> with myself and with the practice. And I thought, because I, I, I thought, uh, that's all I'm doing. I'm just, I'm just stuck. This is a big waste of time, was my conclusion. I'm not getting anywhere. I've been sitting here for months, wanting and not wanting. That's 
how's your practice going? Well, I'm wanting and not wanting. That's all I'm doing, you know. <laughs> Uh, and so, I mean, I had enough respect for the teacher to uh, not to just leave, which is what I felt like doing, um, to, but to go and tell him that I was going to leave. I was packing my bags and I was leaving. That's it. I can't do it. Uh, it's a waste of time. Uh, and uh, he said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Just tell me what happened, you know. And, and so I, I told him, you know, I just, I realized... I've been sitting here for months and all I'm doing is longing and resisting, longing and resisting. And uh, he said, oh no, no, this is not the time to leave, <laughs> you know. He said, you're seeing clearly. And it was another one of those jaw-dropping moments. I said, what? He says, you're seeing clearly. Uh, and I went, this is what I want to see. <laughs> he goes, yeah, that's, that's what you want to see. I was stunned, you know. And I thought, well, okay, I can do that. <laughs> There's certainly enough of it, you know. I can sit and watch that. <laughs> and, you know, I went back to, I trusted him, you know, that he was right, and went back to the cushion and got back to work, you know. But it was interesting because even it's like here. Here's a moment of it. Really, was a moment of clear seeing, but without the wisdom to even understand it as significant. You know, it was many months later that I began to realize that, oh, <laughs> you know, that you you want to you want to get to that place where you know that. And instead of being it, but uh, you know, it's hard won initially. It's that that pattern, that habit is so deeply, deeply entrenched, you know. Uh, and, and yet, uh, it, it, here it was, you know. But as I said, it was months later uh, before I even uh, realized uh, that that was significant, and that that uh, that's what I, I really needed to apply myself to continue to see. And so, you know, you, you see how the mind is complicating things through that movement of the mind, and how, uh, in an unguarded moment, you, you just move right into that. That's where you live, and you know, and that's what you get because of that. Uh, and but you want to see that, and you want to keep seeing it. And boy, you, if you ever question the uh, this your own stamina your own determination, you know, your own commitment to liberating this mind. Just, just sit and, and try to re- remember or reflect on how many times you have caught it yourself being caught up, you know, and let it go, and went back for more. <laughs> it's like, wow, you talk about commitment, you talk about determination, you know, we, 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 we're not um, short on that particular parami. Every one of us is really uh, has that very well developed, and you can trust it. You can know it. So, just uh, you know, meditators t- tend to report a, a tremendous relief just in beginning to calm that impulse to grab by situating themselves in this place of knowing the grabbing. <laughs> Yeah, just just to do that quarter turn in the mind, and and you know one is really quite glad not to have to keep grabbing and and doing something about everything that happens in the mind, <laughs> every moment of contact, every sight, every sound, every smell, every taste, and and, and just to really begin to step outside of all of that. We want and we see. Uh, begin to see the directly see the experience, realize the experience of letting sensations, feelings, and thoughts arise and pass away, arise and pass away, and knowing that we're situated in a different place in relation to all of that. Man, you know, I can't emphasize this enough. This is a this is a very very uh, important realization, important teaching. Uh, you know, so much so. One of the one of the stories in reading uh, Ajahn Chah's 
biography. He talks, he doesn't talk a lot about his own personal practice, but every now and then you get a nice little snippet in his uh, stories. And one that um, he tells is of the time that he met Ajahn Man. And he was a young monk. He was like in his uh, 20s, I think he was only 23 or 24, uh, just really early on in his own practice. And he had heard about Ajahn Man and that he was an excellent teacher and somehow intuitively knew that um, uh, he should seek him out. And so he did, which is hard to do because Ajahn Man was a wanderer. You know, he didn't really stay in one place. And of course, this was before cell phones. You know, you can't find the guy. He's out in the forest somewhere, you know. So it took him quite a while to find him. Uh, but he did eventually. And um, he only spent uh, three days with him. And, you know, as you might imagine, to, to spend three days with a, with a teacher, you know, it's not like they sat down and talked for uh, around the clock. He probably only got a few little snippets of teaching here and there uh, over the course of those three days. But from that point on, until he died, he, he, he called Ajahn Man his teacher. You know, and he never saw him again. He never saw him again. And, and the reason why he called him his teacher was because of what he learned in, in those few days. And he said that the, the, that teaching that he got then was the key to his own liberation. And lo and behold, what do you think it was? <laughs> it, it was basically the difference between um, the mind itself and the, uh, thing, the mental arisings within the mind just to be able to discern that difference. And that's, that's that quarter turn, you know, that's that, uh, that, that bit that experiences directly the difference between the knowing and the object of, the know, uh, of what is known, right? The objects of the mind. Or another, another uh, way that it's taught is in the, uh, remember in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the, the sense bases, where one begins to discern the difference between the eye that sees, the object that it sees, and the way that the mind relates, the pick, the grabbing, the fetter, remember that language? The fetter that arises in relation. So we begin to see the difference between the mind, the things that arise in the mind, and the fetter that arises in relation. Just on, uh, you know, nothing, I mean, I'm not trying to say anything really profound here, but just to uh, point to um, the place where he pointed his mind uh, and, and uh, what, uh, um, where he was looking to really work on untangling it all. To see the mind, see what comes into the mind and know the difference. You know, I often wonder if, um, you know, because there's that one quote uh, that we hear from Ajahn Chah all the time, he quoted about the still forest pool it's actually in the suttas too. I think Ajahn Chah was quoting the, the suttas, but the, the, still, the difference between the still forest pool and the animals that keep coming to take a drink, you know, you know that one. Uh, uh, and uh, he, he makes the he compares the, the pool to the awakened mind, you know, that it remains that all kinds of things come <laughs> and take a drink and, and kind of hang there for a minute, and then they go away, you know. But the, the pool itself remains still. And this is, this is I think, what uh, Ajahn Chah is pointing to here. Uh, and, and it's not outside the realm of possibilities for us to uh, see and know and experience. Uh, and I think a lot of it, at least let me just speak from my own experience, that uh, a lot of it is just um, um, daring to... Um, uh, Say that you've seen it when you've seen it. <laughs> Say that you've experienced when you experience it. To let that really in your mind. Let that register. Oh, I am actually not picking it up right now. You know, or I'm actually um, situated in a in a posture that is outside, looking on, and really, in in a way, investigating, knowing, uh, let, letting the con- that condition penetrate. Know it very well. Explore it. What's that like when it happens? Because it does happen. We all know it. 
So this this insight is all. This is all very very important. And the the only one more thing that I I want to say about it is that um, it, it, it's important to realize that that we go, we go in and out of being able to see clearly, don't we? It's like one day you get good days, you get bad days. You get good moments, you get bad moments. You know, it it just doesn't. Um, it, it seemed to it would be great to be able to say that you get it and you stay there, you know. <laughs> but it doesn't really um, uh, play out that way. It, it, this kind of seeing that the Buddha is pointing to it takes a it takes a long time to to stabilize. You know, you you go through periods where uh, we see and then where we don't see. We go in and out of uh, knowing and being able to sustain that knowing and, and being able to act out of that. And sometimes it's quite clear, and sometimes it's not. And, and it can feel like you don't know anything at all. I don't know, I just like to name these places and be honest about them. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we all go through this. And this is where Sangha is so helpful and so important to be able to say that. and. Uh, hold each other in it you know it, it can be it can be di- difficult but it is all but to, to realize that it is all part of the the process of, of stabilizing the knowing that we are um, experiencing and, and we have to fully see for ourselves that the, the difference between uh, the still and the disturbed mind is that longing and resisting that's the, that's what makes all the difference the two extremes to be avoided. Yeah, that's that's what's uh, the manifestation of ignorance in the mind. We want to be able to see it, or just seeing that this longing and resisting is the fetter. That's the thing that grabs. So it's really good to to make peace with this uh, period of of going you know, in and out and. As I said, sometimes it can feel as though you've lost it, but we 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 haven't lost it. It just it, it's like anything; it comes and goes. So if you if along the path we we reach times where we feel very frustrated and we want to uh, throw in the towel, if you will, you know, like um, know that that's normal. Number one, and. Uh, Number two, that I know that it's actually good news. <laughs> it, it's like, you know, uh, what's actually happening there is that the sense of self is beginning to lose its grip. It's beginning to die. But the sense of self doesn't go um, easily into the grave. <laughs> it's, a, it's a gradual process. But the, the mind has to um, see for itself that, that uh, the, these self absorbed impulses, uh, self-absorbed concerns um, of don't pay off, that the whole uh, approach that uh, we take to it all through uh, the sense of self um, isn't efficacious. The only thing that is efficacious is holding things with kindness, letting go, and, and trying um, not to uh, beat ourselves up about it just to, to, to be there with what is happening. So if this sense of self begins to uh, fade, that sense of controlling and managing and directing the course of practice, this is a really a good thing. And uh, we want to be able to cheer, if anything, when that's happening. So, uh, you know, not to be afraid. I mean, it can be a little scary because uh, operating out of a sense of self is very familiar. But um, and so we're letting go of the familiar, and that can create a sense of uh, uh, being wobbly. But uh, it does relinquish its grip over time, and uh, that longing and the resisting—that's the language of the sense of self. And so that—that's what's uh, being relinquished slowly and gradually through the years of practice. So just to know that. Um, we don't have to do anything to make that happen. In a way, you almost have to just live long enough to let it die, you know, <laughs> let, it, let it die, let it pass away. 
So the, the key to the uh, end of suffering is just plainly and, and simply uh, being aware of the, the movement of the mind and, and trying just to notice it instead of going with it and instead of resisting it. You don't have to do anything other than that. We just have to, uh, in a way, stop doing that. <laughs> stop doing the grabbing and the longing and the resisting. So, you know, in a way, I don't know, I, I, I've come around through the years to seeing practice as much less of a doing and much more of a not doing. It's like, don't do that, don't do the stuff that, that keeps uh, bringing us down uh, the course of suffering. And then, uh, over the years, you find that uh, if you trust that, if we trust that process, uh, it, it affects a way, uh, necessarily, uh, of softening the heart, becoming kinder and softer when we see ourselves getting caught up, when other people are being caught up. It really affects our relationships over the years as well, because uh, whatever we're doing in relation to ourselves, we're also um, will also manifest in our relationships with other people. So we're getting kinder, we're getting more compassionate, and just more able to, to let things uh, be. And one becomes a little more confident, just knowing the difficult places and learning uh, not to go there, knowing how the suffering happens, knowing how it's released. I mean, this, is, this is all that he's getting at uh, with right view and, and right intention, wisdom, seeing it all for ourselves. So when we're not being pulled in one direction or another, then uh, the, the course is the middle way. And one um, experiences that very directly. You know, and and uh, you, you trust it, you believe it, you know it, that um, if you want the, it's not just the path of least resistance. It's the path of, of, of wisdom and the, the greatest possible happiness that can be experienced in this human birth. So this is the, the promise of practice and I think what the, the Buddha is pointing to with uh, Panya, uh, just at, uh, as the beginning and the fruit of, uh, of the path. So I hope some of this is helpful. <laughs> Look forward to talking with you about it uh, at another time. And uh, in the meantime, let's uh, uh, sit for a minute and we'll do a chant. And then uh, I'll leave you to uh, continue to practice if you like, uh, or um, go and read or study or go to rest, or whatever, whatever feels right for you. But whoever's the last one out tonight, would you turn out the lights, accept the light on the shrine? And uh, I'm not sure, I think we'll just leave the fans on because they're a little troublesome and somebody has to come and turn them on and off, okay? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.